0: the real way to grow wealth is investing. You can only earn so much working.
1: Welcome to the Smart Money Mama show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money mamas. Hey there! I'm your host Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show we're talking to Bobby Rebel, a certified financial planner, host of the Financial Grown Up podcast, and co-host of the Money with Friends podcast with Joe High. She's a busy lady. Bobby has so much knowledge and experience about investing in the financial markets, but what I love about her is that she doesn't come at it with an all-or-nothing, one-size-fits-all approach. She brings an impressive level of understanding and compassion to a topic that is scary for a lot of moms. So, today I wanted to bring Bobby on the show to share how you can get started investing, why it's important for your long term financial success, and how to ask good questions so you can keep learning as you dip your toe further into the world of investing. I promise, it'll be fun. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this chat with Bobby. Or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Bobby and that's B-O-B-B-I for our complete show notes and to download your free copy of our investing primer for mamas. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey, Bobby, it's so good to have you on the show. I can't believe what a rock star you are and you have two podcasts right now.
0: I know. Oh, my God. How did this happen?
1: That sounds super overwhelming.
0: (laughs) It is. In fact, I think I emailed you at one point uh, because I wanted very much to be part of your Smart Money Mom seminar. And I was really battling with trying to say no more. And I didn't want to say no to you. And I would literally say, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And I think I sent some emails that literally said, overwhelm. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> because I got to a point last spring where that's all I could do. I just could barely, or last summer, whatever it was, where I could, I wanted to acknowledge emails, but I couldn't even write more than that. So we've done some changes, which we can talk about. But two is a lot.
1: Two is a lot, and I think every mama in our audience can understand the overwhelm and the difficulty saying no. Right? Like you right. so much guilt around like I should just do all the things all the time. It's not
0: even guilt, Chelsea. It's actually wanting to do it. Yeah, it's actually wanting to do it but knowing that you really can't, but hoping you can find a way to do it. Yeah. If I say yes, maybe it'll just fall into place. (laughs) Exactly. You keep saying, okay, well, maybe if this happens, maybe if this happens, I can do it. But you just are in constant motion until your head hits the pillow. So it somehow doesn't happen. But that's mom life. That's total mom life.
1: Okay. So I got to ask you, I heard once that the best advice you ever got was to ask questions and listen very closely to the answers. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, was that advice that led you to being a journalist?
0: Or was that something you learned as a journalist? Probably both. (laughs) I honestly don't remember. So I've been talking a little bit. I turned... 40, 10 years ago. I've now turned 50. When I turned 40, I didn't want to talk about my age that much. Now I turn 50. I'm kind of like, I want to talk about being 50. I don't remember. A lot of my life kind of blends together over, especially I have a 12 year old now. And a lot of it, thank goodness for some social media in some ways, because it's providing some memories now of, oh my gosh, I remember when. I don't know when I got that advice, but it is amazing advice because it's led me to so many wonderful things. A lot of what drove my writing my book how to be a financial grown up which came out in 2016 was doing what i call a mentor tour where i literally called up or reached out in whatever you know mode was most appropriate everyone that i thought could possibly have something interesting to say and i also took people up on offers when they said oh i'll introduce you to this person so i met jean chatsky because someone who was a guest on reuters said oh i'm i'm her running partner i'll introduce you and i was really intimidated but finally i said okay yes make the introduction Then I emailed Jean and she was wonderful and became a mentor and now a friend to me. So I went on this mentor tour and I asked all these incredible people, and it was a lot of women and moms, to be honest with you, about what I should do for the next step in my life. And that led me to writing a book. And writing a book. Was
1: that before or after you became a CFP? Because I know that there's a lot of financial journalists that never go and actually get the designation of the investing education. So how did you decide to do that path?
0: It's a two-step answer. The first part of the answer is that I love learning. So when I was at CNBC, my very first job out of college, and I was single and you know had some time, and I was the nerd that I still am, <laughs> for fun, because CNBC paid for it, I went and took all the courses to learn the information because I felt it would make me a better journalist to know the answers. So I took the courses without the intention of taking the exam and becoming a CFP because at the time, as a journalist, they would not let you be a CFP. You had to actually stop being a journalist and go practice first for a few years, and then you could take the test or you could get the designation. So that wasn't available to me to be a CFP at the time, but I took all the courses. So I had a certificate in financial planning for many, many years, but I was not a CFP with a registered trademark and getting to do all the, you know, dues paying and continuing education that I do now. So I had that as a journalist I wanted to know the answers, so people couldn't fool me, or I just knew what to expect. As a journalist, you're not always looking for answers. Sometimes you know the answers, but you want the source to tell you. Most of my career, in the end, even though I wanted to do personal finance, it's not the most TV-friendly thing, and I did work as a TV anchor, for those that don't know it. I did really earnings and macroeconomic news and the Fed and interviewing CEOs and traveling to conferences, so personal finance was not in my universe. Even though I had hoped it would be when I was 22 and at CNBC and took these courses, the reality was that's not where the financial television media is. It's a lot of the ticker running and, oh, this company reported earnings and let's see what we're going to do, which is really not always the best stuff to watch as an investor. (laughs) That can drive you crazy. Totally. So when I wrote my book, I wrote it very much as a journalist. I interviewed people. I had a very strong interest in helping young people, especially, but it turned out many generations are interested in being grown ups. It takes us a long time. So that was written as a journalist. So then I go out and I start speaking and doing promotion for the book, and people would treat me as if I was the expert, but I wasn't. I interviewed the experts, to be clear. I was really good on Fed policy, really good on economic data, but I didn't really know exactly how a HSA was different from an FSA. And I didn't really understand the different things that went on between different life insurance and and long-term insurance and whatever. So I did decide that I would circle back to the CFP board. I had heard actually from Liz Weston, who is a CFP and a journalist. She's now at NerdWallet. And by the way, she's on our show Money with Friends, which you've been on. I heard that they were accepting Journalism credits, if you had reached a certain status level, as qualifications to be a CFP, provided you could re- meet all the other requirements, taking the courses, getting, you know, passing grades in those, and of course, taking the test. And so I looked into it and I went to them and I showed them what I had done, which included a personal finance column at Reuters, which I had done in conjunction with a book. And just other experience in journalism uh, you know, at Reuters and CNBC and CNN, and they felt that that was sufficient to show that I was serious. And they let me take the test. And so I took the test in November of 2017. It was probably my, in terms of academics, and I went to a really good college and all that. (laughs) It was still my biggest academic achievement for sure, taking that test. It's really hard. And so I took it very recently and I passed the test.
1: Well, congratulations.
0: I really enjoyed the material, to be honest with you. I think it's really interesting. And it's always changing. There's a lot of laws that have changed. So I like the fact that we have to take um, continuing education courses so that we stay up on the changes that are going on. Absolutely. And that brings up
1: so many interesting ideas around like, just because you know investing or you know one area of finance doesn't mean that your personal finance knowledge is strong, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I come from a hedge fund background, and I can tell you that there are people I worked with that managed large amounts of money that personal finances were a total mess, right? So what does it mean to be a financial grown up?
0: It means acknowledging that you have decisions to make and making those decisions based on what you have at that time and being responsible for your decisions. It does not mean being perfect. It doesn't mean any specific thing like having your retirement sewn up or having all your debt paid off. It just means kind of owning it. Absolutely. And not expecting someone else to bail you out. Yeah. Or save you. So you can be, for example, a financial grown up, and you're paying all of your necessary bills. But you know what? If a parent wants to pay for dinner for you, if you're out with your parents, they can pay for dinner. It's okay. Because you could pay for dinner. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's not strict So that's the, rules. the thing. Exactly. It's that you've got your own finances under control. And what you don't have under control, you're acknowledging. Because nothing's ever perfect. No matter how much money you have, you always would be in better shape. If, you, if I just had this much more, things would be good. I'm sure you heard stories of people with crazy annual incomes that still can't make ends meet. Oh, can't make ends meet
1: or just are not handling things, right? We... I had a colleague that had a 401k that she'd never allocated, like it was sitting in a money market fund for (gasps) years. And she was very senior at our fund. So they were maxing out her 401k every year, the 43,000 or whatever it was, and she'd never allocated it, which still kind of gives me heart palpitations.
0: But (laughs) it's true. I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings in the world where people say, yes, I'm putting my money into my 401k. And that's a bucket Mm-hmm. Then where? And yeah. I went through that exact discussion with my 23 year old stepdaughter, where she's a consultant at a great firm, big four firm. And she was, you know, following my direction. She says, Aren't you proud of me? I put in, you know, this amount so I get the maximum match. And I was like, Well, what investment did you put it in? The 401k. The 401k. <laughs> exactly. And then it gets worse. Well, better because I was there and she learned and she's great. But I said, okay, well, let's go over together. And there were a bunch of different options from different companies. You know, each company has three or four choices. And I showed her which one to put it in. I said, let me check after you do it. And I checked and she went with the same holding company. It was the same brokerage firm that I told her. But she didn't understand that she had put it in a fixed income fund when I had told her to put in something that's basically an S&P fund. Yeah. An S&P 500 fund to start. And she just was like, but it says, you know, it was Northern Trust, I think. It says Northern Trust. What's the difference? So again these are really nuanced things, but they're huge. Yeah, So it's important that we talk about it. And it's important. I hope companies will get more involved. Her company would say, we are here for them. It's all on our HR site. We have They have tons of videos you can watch. You can self-educate all you want. But she didn't know, like so many people, what she didn't know.
1: Absolutely. So I'm curious when you had those conversations with your stepdaughter and teaching her about investing, how did you explain to her why investing was important? And Was there any element of it of why investing is specifically important for women?
0: First of all, I think to a large degree, she already knew investing was important. I think in this case, she didn't know just putting it in the 401k was not investing. That was saving, not investing. So I think growing up with me, and and even though she's my stepdaughter, she grew up in my and my husband's household. So I do think that she does definitely recognize the importance for women. We've talked about that. She is very independent. She is very focused. She initially started college focused on being a teacher, to be honest with you, which is a wonderful profession, but generally pays less than cybersecurity consulting, which is what she switched to. And a lot of the reason that she switched to that is because of talks and not so much with me more, to be honest with you, with my husband, her father, who spoke to her about what it costs. In her case, she was in the Midwest at a great state school and she loved it, but she wanted to have a life in New York City. Mm -hmm. And they had some real specific talks about what things cost if she wanted to move back to New York City and not always live at home. (laughs) And knowing that, she did make some choices about what she was going to do for a living. And she has what I think is a very good paying job for someone, you know, six months she's been working at a major consulting firm earning, you know, a high salary for a 23-year-old, I would say. And even then, it's not easy.
1: No, especially that adjustment in New York City is, is not easy at all. Exactly. Well, the good thing is she doesn't get sticker shock because she grew up here. <laughs> I'd moved there right after college and was definitely like completely shocked. I went to college in Maine and came down to Manhattan and was just could not believe what rent prices were when I first got there. It's terrifying. It, it really is. <laughs> For someone who didn't grow up in your household, what would you say to the mamas in our audience about why investing is important? What did you teach her over the years or what did she see over the years that taught her that?
0: Honestly, it is, I don't want to say easier may not be the best word. Maybe you have a better word for it, Chelsea. But the real way to grow wealth is investing. Mm -hmm. You can only earn so much working for a salary. And being an entrepreneur, you can absolutely do great, you know, building a company and so on. But I would say for the average person putting your money into the right investments, which in recent history has been as simple as an S&P 500 fund, but we are in a unique period that may not continue in the future, of course. Mm -hmm. You can literally do nothing and your money will grow. Statistically, based on history, no guarantees, but it is a way to create financial security for you and for your family. And I will tell you, I call my husband my forever husband. (laughs) I was divorced by 30. I don't know if you know that. I don't know that. You did. I did not know that. Oh yeah, I was divorced by 30. And I will tell you money the fa- well first of all we fought about money, so that was one thing, but also having the fact that I had the job, I had financial resources. Mm-hmm. I owned the apartment, having that security, and I had the appropriate investments for someone that age. You know, I was investing in the 401k, and even though you should never touch your retirement funds, it's still there. And yeah. You could always crack it open, you shouldn't, but it's there if <laughs> you have to. Um, Having that financial security, and even now, I'm happily married, but I have financial security. I have money in the bank. You're not dependent on a partner. You can have that freedom. Just even psychologically, we behave differently when we know we have financial security. We sleep better when we know we have financial security, and investing is the best way to provide that. Generally, you can earn more and more throughout your career, but look, we could, many people think we're heading to a recession. If you've put away money and it is growing, as it has, for example, the last few years have been phenomenal, you will have financial security. And you're also setting a great example for your children. Yeah.
1: I like that point about your your spouse and how you always have that financial security. And I was thinking of, I don't know if you know Tanya Hester from Our Next Life. Of course. But she talks about how when they reach the level of financial independence, where they would both be financially independent, even if they got divorced, it like actually mm-hmm. improved their relationship of like, we're choosing to be together now. We're not dependent on each other.
0: We are, I totally agree. We're both
1: here because we love each other. And that's why we want to be here.
0: And it's also an interesting point that even though I've never On purpose, been the breadwinner. I have been the breadwinner. So my first husband made a good income when we were engaged. His company was bought and he had a buyout situation. He had always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So he was doing that. So during our whole marriage, he had no income. And that was not my choice. And that's not what I signed up for. And that was not the deal. And in fact, even then, He said, if the business doesn't hit these milestones by this point, I will fold it and get a job. And it was not a time of economic, he could have gotten a job. It wasn't a middle of a recession or anything like that. And he didn't. And he was defiant for several years saying, I will get a job, I will get a job. And he wasn't doing anything towards that. So having that financial security and being the breadwinner, I mean, I provided health insurance. Even my husband had, let's call it a personal reorg where he had his own company and then he went to work for a larger corporation. During that transition, I had the health insurance because I worked for, a—I was in a union job working for a big corporation, Reuters. And so... Having that security to know that if your spouse chooses or is forced to do something else, you can carry things. Maybe not permanently. I, Like I said, in terms of when my spouses have been employed, I've never been the breadwinner right now. My husband earns much more than I do, but I know that I can earn money. And I also know that I'm earning a certain amount now because I'm also a full-time mom. I have no childcare. I haven't had any childcare for a couple of years, and I have no family in town that provides childcare, I mean, yeah, I, I can't think of anybody that I would call family-wise, I, you know. I mean, occasionally my dad might be in town. He's in California for the winter. So if he's in town and I need somebody to pick up my son, of course he would. I have wonderful family. But I don't have any regular child care. It's not like I have a parent that is picking kids up. So I think it's important that moms also be realistic. It's okay not to be the breadwinner sometimes because you are a full-time mom and you're running the business. So now I'm a full-time mom and I'm earning more than I did in my corporate job. I'm good with that. I'm perfectly happy to have my husband be the breadwinner. He'd love for me to be the breadwinner. <laughs> he's like, go. He's he's the biggest cheerleader for my business. But I think it's important to be happy with where you are. But always know that if something happens, you can ramp it up.
1: And this is such an interesting... So my husband is a stay-at-home dad. And I've been this sole breadwinner since our kids were born four years ago. For us, this was a huge discussion. He was interested in being a stay-at-home dad. It made more sense for him to be the stay-at-home parent. But I like made us have these have these conversations of, "Okay, if you had to go back to work, what do you have?" Mm-hmm. So for him, he has his master's degree in construction engineering, which is always in high demand. He's an estimator and a project manager. And he has a large boat captain's license. Like he used to be a yacht captain. So he keeps That's so cool, <laughs> which is so strange, honestly. But we make him keep his hours up and keep his license so that if something happened, you always have that backup plan. And that comes back to the security and building wealth and making sure you always have an option.
0: I love that. And look, I also became a CFP to have another plan B. So that is something that I can do if the media thing does not work out. I always keep my network of friends if I want to go into PR or if I want to just do something different. I think it's really important to be able to pivot. And also, Chelsea, a lot of what I thought was going to be my business when I left Reuters after I wrote the book has really pivoted. I thought my primary income would be speaking. And I realized that that was a logistical nightmare with kids because my husband is a very successful consultant and he has to travel sometimes on very little notice. So it was tough for me to also be traveling. I still travel a little, but not as much as I was, at, not as a primary income source, let's say that. Yeah. And so I started doing more brand work and I started doing a for Tarabi, actually I have to give her credit. She's the one that told me to do a podcast because she said, you can do it from home. hmm she said, "That way, you do something and you own it, and you have something that's yours. But you can do it." She said, "You can do it in your pajamas." So, <laughs> neither of us are in our pajamas. No, by the way. not at the moment. But we could. It could we be. could. So, I think it's important that if you start a business, you be ready to pivot. Most of my income right now does come from working with brands, which sometimes is in person, but the vast majority is not in person. And you can do that or you do it one day, you go in and do something in person. So it gives you a lot more flexibility as a mom. If you kind of figure out what are the things where I can sort of even if someone else is sort of the lead parent, that's what I like to call it, rather the mom, you know, the stay at home mom, stay at home dad, the lead parent, yeah. you can still be a full participant. So and I should say my son is 12. So it's not that much hands on the way it used to be. When I transitioned, he was already nine. So already he was in school full time. I didn't not have any help when he was much younger. I had help. I had a nanny.
1: We have the, the four and two-year-olds. So right now they're still in the stage of, can I sneak and hit the power button on mom's laptop before she notices that my fingers have snuck in? Oh <laughs> So my they goodness. like to shut me down, which is a little bit difficult. Yes. But to come back to a second for investing and using that as a way to build wealth and security, what holds people back from getting started? Because I think a lot of us know that it's a good idea, but then we're afraid.
0: First of all, I think it's okay to be afraid. I think it's important to validate the feeling of being afraid because it is risky. And one of the biggest mistakes I feel people make is not being afraid, not being in touch with your risk tolerance. A lot of people, especially as I mentioned, the market has been phenomenal the last few years, so it looks easy. And all these people that are doing FIRE, which is financial independence, retire early, which is great for people that it's a fit for, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, look, these people are making so much money on their investments. It's gonna be great, and the minute we get a little you know, wobble in the market, they have a freak out. Even though they thought they had a really high risk tolerance, they don't. And it's really important to be in touch with your risk tolerance. So I say, first of all, if you are fearful, that's okay. You're in touch with your risk tolerance, and that's a good thing. So you can do something where you dip your toe in slowly. Something called dollar cost averaging is a great way to get started, where you take the total amount you're going to invest, and you put in a percentage, in certain time periods, you're kind of doing that with many 401k plans by default, because you're putting in a certain percentage of your paycheck every month. So that's a similar analogy to that. And that way you don't worry about putting all your money in at the very top and then it's going to fall down. It's something that I've done. It's also okay to be a little bit conservative. If that's going to help you sleep at night, that's okay. I have a chunk of money, not a massive chunk, but a little bit that's in cash right now because uh, I don't know. A little nervous. And uh, that's just, I feel better that way. That's okay.
1: I like that being in touch with your risk tolerance, because I definitely see people that especially that came of age in the last 10 to 12 years that are like, oh, I love investing. It's so easy. And it's like, well, you've never really seen a drop. Like, so let's do the mental work of, okay, how would you feel if you woke up in the morning and your value was 30% down or 20% down?
0: And that has happened in the past. I think a good analogy is housing. The younger people today see that housing hasn't proven in in recent years to be the best financial investment. There's reasons you might want to buy a house, of course, but for money, that's not the best place necessarily to put your money in recent history. However, when I grew up, I was born in the 70s, so when I grew up, that was considered the best place. You were supposed to stretch to buy the best, biggest, perfect house you could and grow into it. My parents bought the house I grew up in that they could barely afford, and they told me they just didn't buy furniture. They were out of money. And they figured they'd they'd get to the furniture, but they, you know, you were told to really stretch. That was the mentality, stretch, 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 because homes always went up in value over history, right? So that's kind of where we are in the recent history of the stock market. I grew up, homes always go up in value. Therefore, I bought a home. They're going up. Stocks always seem to go up. When they go down, they go down a few hundred points, which percentage-wise is nothing these days. And that's kind of where they're used to, but that could change. So- I am a huge advocate for investing. I have the vast majority of my money in the stock market, but it's also okay to, you know, if you feel you want to take some money and maybe do other things with it, that's okay too.
1: Awesome. So, Bobby, we're going to dive into how we actually get started and what accounts to look at. But first, I want to take a quick word from our sponsors who help make this show possible. Today's podcast is brought to you by Debt.com. One of my favorite things about Debt.com is that they remove the embarrassment around getting out of debt. If you're feeling overwhelmed by monthly payments or balances, but don't know who to turn to, Debt.com can match you with the perfect, trustworthy debt solution provider to help you create a debt freedom plan and build a strong financial foundation. You can learn more by visiting smartmoneymamas.com backslash debt or by calling their free support line at 844-462-8280 to discuss solutions for your unique situation. That number again is 844 462 8280. Debt.com for when life happens. All right, Bobby. So, if we're ready to invest, we've talked a little bit about the 401k. Is that the best place to start if you're a new investor?
0: It is the best place to start if your employer will give you free money. <laughs> valid. You're laughing, but that's the truth. The number one reason to put money in your 401k is that, for example, my first job at CNBC, if I remember correctly, it was 6%, which is high, mm-hmm. and they would match it. So for every $6 I put in, they gave me $6. That's a 100% return. That is hard to get. If you have any matching in your 401k, that is absolutely the best place to start.
1: Yeah. And 6% match is really high, guys. You're more likely to see like If you put in four, you get two, but it's still free money. It's still a 50% return.
0: Yeah, the 401k is the best place to get started. If you have any kind of match, it's really important. It's also, with many retirement accounts, you are either paying tax going in or going out. The second place you might wanna consider investing, and this is a little bit out of the box, but it's something that is new and very exciting for those of us that are super nerdy. You wanna make sure if you do have a high deductible health plan, that you make sure to fund your HSA. And the reason I want to highlight the HSA is that it is, to my knowledge, the only vehicle where you can not pay taxes going in and not t- pay taxes going out. So with a traditional 401k, you don't pay taxes going in, but you do pay taxes going out. With a Roth IRA, you do pay taxes going in, but you don't pay taxes going out. With an HSA, if you follow the rules, you can avoid paying taxes going in, and you can avoid paying taxes going out. And if you don't use that money to pay your medical expenses as you go through life, when you are retired, that can effectively serve as a retirement fund. So I think it's important that we highlight that, especially for young people who may be on, or of any age, anyone that might be on a high deductible health plan, pay attention to that. The other thing we talked about my stepdaughter earlier, her company, she's a big benefits company, They do, if you do a high deductible health care plan, which you just went on, they will put in $750 to your account to kind of get you started. Free money. A lot of big companies do that because if you're just starting out and you have a high deductible health plan, you don't get any money back for a very long time. And you might be only saving, you know, even if you're doing everything you can, there's only so much you can save per year. I don't have the limits with me right now. But maybe you can put that in your show notes. There's only so much you can save. So a lot of companies do give you a head start and will literally put cash in your account each year. So those two things are where the free money is. Absolutely.
1: And for the HSA, my understanding is to make the best use of it, you want to make sure that you can afford your deductible without having to tap into your HSA. The more the longer that money can stay there and stay invested,
0: the better, obviously. Exactly, which is counterintuitive, because in theory, that money is to pay those health expenses. But if you can hold off, keep that money in there. Again, if you follow the rules, no tax in, no tax out, which is huge.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's say you don't have a 401k match. Is there a reason you might want to look elsewhere?
0: There is because an IRA might give you more investment choices. So your 401k in most cases is great, but they do have fees and those can be, there are places to look for them through your company. If you talk to HR, you know, they'll give you the information if you ask and you can find out 401ks do have fees in different companies manage them differently. But some of them do have fees that should be considered versus you can open up an IRA and maybe you don't have as high fees. And with an IRA, you have a lot more choice as to where you can invest. Both are good, though. And you know what? If you can max out both, that's great.
1: If you're eligible, right? There are income limitations on an IRA. Exactly. And the one question on the 401k fees, I want to clarify, there's two types of fees in your 401k, right? There's the management fee that your 401k provider might charge. And then there's the expense ratio of your funds. And you want to make sure you're not just looking at the expense ratios of your funds.
0: Such a great point. Absolutely. Different investment choices have different fees. And again, that should all be either openly disclosed or something you can easily access in terms of that information. But investing isn't free. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that they think their company is paying that. But in almost every case that I've ever heard of, you are paying those fees. It's actually fascinating. We've had a number of mamas in our community send
1: me like pictures of their 401k options, the paperwork they get from HR. And I am shocked how many do not have a column of the expense ratio. Like you can go and look it up, but the thing yes, that they look handed, they don't have it. And that makes it really hard for people to make a decision. So that's actually a question I want to ask you is when you get that list of funds, what type of research should you be doing to choose what's right for you to get started?
0: That's really hard. I mean, that's really hard. I think that it's a real problem in our society that we are not given the resources to do that. And it's a question of educating yourself. Most of the time, there will be choices that fit what you want. And it's just a question of that. Now, a default one, and I have mixed feelings about recommending this, are the ones that, oh gosh, I'm forgetting these, but they basically wind down by your retirement. uh, Target date retirement fund. Target date retirement. The problem with that is sometimes they are funds of funds. Mm -hmm. So they could have more fees. So I just want to disclose that. But I do have some money in that kind of thing. And so just be aware, though, that there are fees associated with that. And the idea of those funds is that they will automatically change your allocation as you get older and become more conservative. So that's one thing. You also, for me, I think the S&P 500, you know, a diversified U.S. fund is good. But you can think about what kind of portfolio allocation do I want? Maybe I want 80% U.S. stocks. 10% foreign stocks, 5% or international stocks, I should say, 5% emerging, and then maybe 5% some kind of a fixed income instrument. You know, think about that and then find the funds that match what you want. But you may want to get some advice from a third party.
1: I think that's a huge thing. I want to ask some more questions about the allocation. But first, just because you mentioned it, How do we find a good advisor, right? So this is something that comes up in our audience a lot of, hey, I really just want somebody to walk me through this, but I'm worried about hiring someone that doesn't have my best interest at heart or isn't an educator. How do we go out and find a good financial planner to help us out?
0: You want to look for, in many cases, someone that has credentials. I am a CFP, so I am biased towards the CFP, People Certified Financial Planner, so that's always something where you know they've gone through that education that they've passed the exams they've done a very it's a very rigorous curriculum and it's also to stay a CFP you're constantly doing education and there's also a lot of ethics involved with the CFPs where you have a lot of assurance that the person you're dealing with is going to be probably a fiduciary. They're going, that means they're going to act in your best interest and not just sell you something that is suitable. So ask this person that's saying they're a financial advisor, are you a CFP? And you can also go and look it up at the CFP board website and look up. And I love it. Once a journalist was interviewing me and she asked, because I go by Bobby Rebell, which is my maiden name, but I'm married. And so my CFP is under my married name, ultimately, because that's my legal name and she was looking for it. And I love that she looked it up and she, you know, I gave her the number and she looked it up and she verified that I was in fact a CFP. So you should verify if people say things, go look it up, look up that they don't have, you know, there's something called broker check. You can look up if they have any violations, what it may be, you'd be surprised, but you can find, there's a lot of public available information to do a little background check on the person that you might put in charge of your money. It's generally good to look for a fee-only person because then you know that what you're paying them. You should not, in my opinion, work with someone who doesn't charge money because if they're working for free, they're either really bad at business, which is not good, or they're making their money other places. And, and you know there are a lot of products like annuities that get a bad rap that I think do have a role for some people, but because of the way they're sold, which in the case of annuities and for example, whole life insurance, they have very high commissions for the people selling them. Therefore they're often sold whether or not they're needed.
1: Yeah. Oversold for sure.
0: It's really, yeah, it's really important to know you can ask them directly. I mean, when I opened up, I have a, I have a few different accounts, but I have a discount brokerage account where I moved my money when I left Reuters and had an, I put opened up, you know, an IRA, you know, I asked him and he said, how do you get paid? And he told me how he gets paid, you know, so and it is tied to how much assets he has under management, you know, so that's fine. You have to just know whatever they do is fine, as long as it's fine with you. But you should at least understand how they're paid and where their incentives lie, so that you can make the best best decision for you. But definitely, it's, you know, good advice you have to pay for I don't think it's right to expect somebody, you wouldn't want to not get paid for your job. So they should get paid for their job. So if someone says, there's no cost to you, Maybe an initial consultation, but after that, it's important that they are being paid in a way that you understand. Comes
1: back to your your advice of ask questions and listen closely to the answers, right?
0: Yeah. And
1: I think we see that sometimes with people interviewing CFPs or, or financial planners of if you ask a question and they seem reticent to answer it, or they seem annoyed that you're asking Maybe you want someone that's gonna you know, educate you a little bit more, be a different personality, and it's okay to walk away <laughs> and say like, this isn't right for me. You don't have to hire right. them just because you took an initial consult. I think we have that struggle sometimes.
0: And a lot of salespeople can call themselves financial planners. There's not really any regulation among just, call- you can't call yourself a certified financial planner. There's a reason there's a little R trademark Thingy, after the CFP designation, which is like a big thing for them. They're very into the registered trademark because it is very different. And unless a CFP were in violation of it, which they take they do take disciplinary action, a CFP is going to act in your best interest. So if they're doing their job right. So I think that's a really good thing to look for. Awesome. All right. So to go back to asset allocation for a second, so
1: you talked about like you want to be this much domestic stocks and this much foreign, that's what's not a recommendation. To Whatever's
0: you. right for somebody Whatever, else,
1: yes. Right. But how do we understand what's right, right? Like is there a any kind of metric of what the stock bond split is based on age or based on gender? Is there any
0: guidelines to go by? I think as a general rule, you want to gradually take less risk as you get to the point where you're going to need that money. Whatever your goal is. So you can say, okay, if you look at the money that in theory you're going to want when you retire, you should gradually have less risk exposure as you get closer to retirement. But you may have money set aside to pay for your child's college. So you want to become less risk averse as you get close to needing that money. So you make sure the money's there. I mean, even my stepdaughter's saving to buy a home and she has a nice chunk of change she saved because she's living at home right now. And she's thinking, where should I put it? Well, she's not going to put it in the stock market, even though in theory that might get the best returns because she might need it in six months to a year. So she's looking at CDs because that's where the money will earn a little bit, but be safe. And she'll have it in six months or a year, whatever she chooses. Yeah. So focus on when you need the money and what your timeline is. And again, validate your risk tolerance. If you're not going to sleep at night, it's not right for you.
1: And this brought up another, another thing for me, actually from reading your book that you guest talked about was, what do we have to have set up before we start investing? Because this is another thing that comes up, right? Of, I know I should have started earlier, so I'm just going to start today. Do we have to have our personal finances figured out in any given way before we start investing?
0: So that's a very personal situation. In general, you do want to have an emergency fund. You want to have a little backstop of cash. That's the most important thing. And also, remember with an emergency fund, you might use it sometimes. Yeah. So you remember it's not a one-time thing. I have used emergency funds. I you may have. I don't know if you have Chelsea, but Oh, we have, yeah. Yeah. It's there. It's so fun when the washing machine breaks. It's so fun. So, you know, sometimes you suddenly have to buy an expensive appliance and it's totally stinks. So you want to have an emergency fund. You want to be prepared and know that you may have to replenish it. So you want to do that and you want to have your debt under control. I don't want to say pay off your debt completely because what I would not want to see is somebody paying off their debt till they're, let's say, age 40 and then missing out on all of those returns, especially the free money and the 401ks that we just talked about. So that's a personal decision, how what your comfort level is. But I don't think you should wait to pay off all of your debt before investing. I think you have to start investing because the biggest driver is going to be time, the compounding of interest over time. And It is just compounded returns are everything. So you, you should not delay too long, even if it's small amounts. Yeah. I, I think that at least
1: getting the 401k match, right? <laughs> never never pass up on Oh my gosh, money.
0: free money. It's literally free money. Yes. And while I don't, I absolutely do not encourage it. And I was just quoted in an article discouraging it. Remember, that money is still your money. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can't get to it in an emergency. You could. You should not. Yeah. But if you were truly, you know, going to lose your house or something terrible, the money is yours. Yeah. You'll pay penalties and all the things.
1: But, but it is yours and you can access it.
0: It's your money. You can take a loan from a 401k, just so people know. Roths are even more flexible.
1: Yeah. So Roths, you can always take out the principal, correct? And it's only if you're taking out the gains. So the money you right. actively put in.
0: You can take it all out. You're going to pay penalties. You're going to pay
1: penalties, but you can pay, take without penalties. Exactly.
0: So keep that in mind. The money is still yours. So... I would definitely be aggressive about investing at the earliest age possible.
1: Awesome. So the emergency fund is funny cuz we were talking earlier about housing and the, you know, you have to buy a house, you have to buy a house. Right after we bought our first house, my husband and I were newly married. We were thought we were going to redeck the our like covered porch in the back just cuz it had the old wood was old and we had a budget for it and the guy comes over to check the house and it turns out that the covered porch which is holding up the roof is not built to code. It does not have the right support Williams and the deck is not attached to the house. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So he was like, I actually have to like report this and I can't do any work until we like file a permit and and jack the house up and rebuild the whole deck. So that like wiped out our emergency fund right after we moved in. (laughs) It's like, why did we buy a house?
0: I know it happens all the time. Look, we moved into the apartment I'm in right now and we had a budget allocated to gut the kitchen, which literally had drawers that were duct taped together. (laughs) and um lovely yeah and we were going to do the kitchen and we found there were problems with the floors there was um mold on the floors basically let's say because there had been some dogs that lived here that maybe weren't properly trained to go outside so we ended up instead i joke it's the most expensive thing i own is the floors we had to do the floors for the whole apartment and take it down to the cement below the floorboard everything had to come out it was a disaster. And we couldn't do the kitchen for, I think, seven or eight years. We had those duct tape drawers because, you know, life gets in the way. Pick
1: something else first.
0: <laughs> yeah. And kitchens are expensive and it just was existing. It was fine. And so we moved on. But things happen with home ownership. I, you know, look, it's a tough thing. I think that the younger people do have a good point when they're resistant to owning homes. There are a lot of expenses and downsides to owning homes, certainly financially.
1: Yeah. So just pivot a little bit something that comes up for uh, especially like millennials who came in of age During the whole recession is that they're more attracted to these alternative investment ideas, right? Like crowdfunded real estate or Peer-to-peer lending. What are your thoughts on these kind of investments? And what advice do you have about the risk those pose versus stocks
0: and bonds? Every investment is different chelsea I think each individual one needs to be evaluated. And what I would say is that I only started doing this stuff recently. I have, for example, I invested in a company called Messy.fm, which is run by Molly Ford Beck, which is a podcasting company. I think it's awesome. I think they're going to be huge. I really believe in her. So I invested in the friends and family round. However, I am not counting any of the money back. Mm -hmm. That is... My, quote, investing fund money, it's to keep life interesting. I love hearing about their progress. It's an interesting project. Again, I absolutely believe she'll be successful. It's a great company. Everyone look up Messy FM. And that's my alternative investment. But it's really risky. Mm -hmm. So I would only do it once you have a foundation of investing. And I would only do it with a very, very small percentage that could go bye-bye. I think they're incredibly risky when you think about it. I think that when, if and when we have a recession, they will be the first to go and to be very careful. That is money you can afford to lose.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the boom of these post the removal of the accredited investor requirement and how that's going to change when we hit a recession. Like I didn't
0: totally- even know that. It's being removed?
1: parts of it were removed. So that's how we got crowdfunded real estate is that used to be you had to be an accredited investor to do things like that. Um, Mm. But now you need 500 bucks and you can invest. And we see it from my background, I did high yield and distressed debt, right? So I see it from a different angle. But if one of those companies goes under and you suddenly have to chase down four different properties, because you don't actually own a fund, you own little pieces of all these different things. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the investment knowledge and, and language to go do that, it, it's really risky and it just puts you in a, in a difficult position.
0: I think that a lot of the people making those decisions, my gut feeling is they have not experienced a real downturn in stocks, meaning a prolonged period where you were in a bear market. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's why I like it when you talk about moms that are risk averse. Yeah. Because they're in touch with their feelings. And maybe they're a little bit too conservative, but at least, I feel they will have the confidence to stand by the decisions that they do make should we have a real problem for a while, which I believe we'll recover from, whatever it is, because historically we always recover. We're a very resilient economy here in the United States. Those people that are making those, that are, those investments, alternative, very risky investments, that sounds like to me, that don't have to be accredited investors, so they might, this might be the only $500 they have, they could really have trouble coping with a loss. I worry for them. So the investments I've made, you have had to be an accredited investor.
1: So real quick, just before we move into our hot seat round, for the moms that are just getting started that want to go learn more about it, uh, learn more about investing or how to find their allocations, where do you recommend they they go read up or any books that you think they should look into?
0: Oh gosh, you're putting me on the spot. There are so many wonderful books. You know, I think anything by Gene Chatzky is a great resource. Mm-hmm. David Bach is a great resource as well. Um, I love Tanya Hester's book, even though that's not necessarily about asset allocation. It's, um, I think it's Work Optional is one of my favorite books. Yep. And uh, David Bach is Automatic Millionaire, right? He has many books. Right. Yeah. As does Gene Chatzky. I love Aaron Lowry's books, which are all yeah. under the broke millennial one. And she has a great second book. It's about investing. I'm broke. The exact millennial name. takes on investing. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. is a fantastic book. I also love Kristen Wong's book, which is Get Money. It's very practical and specific. And Kristen Wong has an amazing sense of humor.
1: It's right behind me.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm trying to think what there is that's literally about investing.
1: I think Aaron's is probably the, the most straightforward there.
0: Erin's is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great resource for people. And it's a good beginner book because she asks the questions that you don't know you need to ask. And she also explains things where sometimes, so we were just talking about an accredited investor. Aaron will take a step back and explain what that means, which is really good. What it basically means just for our audience is that you have a certain amount of money either in the bank separate from your home or that you have a certain income level.
1: And then there's actually another level where you have to have financial experience. That was like in the hedge fund world before you could invest yeah. there. You had to have an inv- investment experience. Awesome. Well, Bobby, before we let you go, <laughs> we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd. So the sorting hat is our version of a hot seat where the magical hat reveals something about you okay. and we see what we learn. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> So your question is, what's your family's favorite children's book?
0: Harry Potter, right now, (laughs) truthfully. No, my son is obsessed. That's really true. And the funny thing is, so he was named after my grandfather Harry. Okay. Harry Harry Rebell. My son Harry was named after Harry Rebell, his great grandfather, who he unfortunately never met. But it's so funny because he's on book four, which is seven hundred pages, and he's very anxious. We're going to be in LA soon. And I think there's a Harry Potter exhibit that he wants to go to. And my stepdaughter was really into them, but she won't share her nice copies of it with him. He has to get his own because they're like precious to her, which is so funny. And he is pushing me. So I haven't read them yet, but he literally gave me his copy and he made me promise that by spring break, I would read at least the first one. He's very upset with me that I have not read Harry Potter. So that's what's happening in our house right now. Truth. And by the way, I love it when I didn't do it now, but I do when people ask who, you know, what Harry's named after I do sometimes I do too. Sometimes I say he's named after Prince Harry. And sometimes I say he's named after Harry Potter. We're obsessed with Harry Potter and we just, you know, we named him Harry Potter and people believe me. I guess I'm a good liar. I don't know, but people believe me when I say that, that I named my child after Harry Potter. My youngest
1: son's middle name is after a character in Harry Potter. So which one, what is it? Remus. Okay. Who is a werewolf. If you get stuck trying to reach spring break, the narrator for the audiobooks of the Harry Potter books is legendary. He's amazing.
0: Oh, so those are really out. good. That's a good tip. Well, Bobby, where can people follow up and find you and find your podcasts? I have two podcasts, as we mentioned. I'll start with Financial Grown Up, that came from its an extension of my book, How to Be a Financial Grown Up, where I ask successful individuals to share money stories about their lives, something that had an impact on them and the lessons from it. And we do fun everyday money tips too. It's very short. It's about 15 minutes. I come from TV, so that sounded really long at the time (laughs) and when I started it. So I was used to three minute interviews. So I was like, how am I going to talk to somebody for 15 minutes? So, financial grown up is my baby. And then my newborn is Money with Friends, which started just last June. It's with Joe High from the Stacking Benjamin's podcast. And we also have a rotating cast of thought leaders, of which, Chelsea, you were one last season in season two. I was. It was so fun. Super fun. So we have a rotating cast of thought leaders, which include Aaron Lowry from Broke Millennial that we just spoke about. It includes Liz Weston, who we mentioned in uh, earlier in the episode. It also includes a comedian named Paul Ollinger and a financial psychologist named Brad Klontz. And we had Julian Saunders from Rich and Regular. It's an awesome group. So it's a rotating cast. We do six episodes a week. Every day except for, for Sunday, there's a new episode. So definitely check out Money with Friends. And the, the website from money with friends is money with friends podcast. You can follow us on money friends pod, which is both on Instagram and Twitter. And all my stuff is under Bobby rebel, except Instagram is Bobby rebel. And the number one, because I messed up and I lost my own handle somehow. (laughs) That's the truth guys. It happens. I'm squatting on my own
1: handle. (laughs) We will uh, have links to all of that in the show notes. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, wow, mamas. We covered so much with Bobby. There are so many different things to dive into when it comes to investing, and I hope that this at least gave you a primer of what to consider and where to begin. Bobby is so great because she brings such compassion and understanding to a complex issue that's scary for a lot of people. I really hope you enjoyed her perspective. As always, I rounded up my top takeaways from today's episode. This time, it's especially important since I know how much investing can lead to overwhelm, and I want you to walk away from this episode feeling confident. Are you ready? Let's recap. First, a financial grownup doesn't have it all figured out, but they do have to be willing to show up and deal with their money. Responsibility can be a major hangup with money for a lot of people. We'll avoid money problems or deal with them grudgingly, wishing someone would just sweep in and handle it for us. We want a white knight to save us, but this is your money and you need to take control. Investing may seem like a big league thing to you. It does for a lot of mamas. You may feel uncertain about it or like you're not ready, but guess what? You're never ready. Not 100%. So show up, start asking questions, clarify your 401k match with HR if you have one, check your expense ratios and investment fees, download our free investing ebook for mamas. You don't have to know everything you never will, but you can start learning, building your confidence, and growing your wealth today. Second, investing is the easiest way to build wealth and stability long term. Yes, you can grow your career, start a business, make your dog Instagram famous. Yet, investing is the easiest way to let your money grow on autopilot. Yes, there will be ups and downs in the market, that's just how it works. But if you start putting money in the market, leave it there long term, and let your dollars work for you, Your money can grow you more money. It's as close to a money tree as we're ever going to get. And third, ask questions and listen to the answers. This life lesson from Bobby is pure gold. We have to ask questions, especially about investing. It is never a good idea to invest in something you don't understand. That's where there's risk. That's where you're likely to sell or buy at exactly the wrong time, because when emotions spike, like during a market downturn, you won't have the knowledge to know what to do. And the only way to learn is ask. There may have been things Bobby and I mentioned in this episode where you were like, what? Ask us. Post a question in the Mama's Talk Money Facebook group. Send me an email. Do a Google search. Set up a meeting with a CFP like Bobby. Start to arm yourself with knowledge. The more you know and the more you practice, the more you'll feel that fear start to fall away and you'll have given yourself the tools to grow your wealth. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Bobby again for joining me on the show and our sponsor Debt.com for helping make this episode possible. If you'd like to see the full show notes for this episode with links to Bobby's website and podcasts or download your free copy of the Money Mamas Guide to Investing, visit smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Bobby. And remember, that's B-O-B-B-I. Keep talking Money Mamas. I'll see you next time.